Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. It's 2019, so I've got a, I've got a new vision. You know, things are going to change. Things are growing. Things are expanding. No, I, I've been doing this thing for so long that I, I and a lot of the time I've, I've actually avoided looking at numbers. And there's, I have a long explanation for why that is, but let's just say that it, uh, it keeps me more focused on quality than quantity. Uh, but that's only true to a certain degree. And recently, I've been kind of looking at the podcast and thinking about how it might grow, how it might change. Uh, I'll probably be unrolling a, a, a Patreon later this year. It's uh, it's a bit of a hamster wheel. I find I put even more time into it as it keeps going, even though I get more uh, used to it. I want to, you know, I'm spending money, reading books, uh, time, uh, better equipment, um, and, you know, and also there's just that inevitable sense of wanting to get uh, positive feedback that it makes it uh, worthwhile. Uh, and along those lines, I, I did want to say that I was very pleased with uh, one comment I was kind of griping to a, a, a listener uh, who I, I met many years ago on the playa. Um, and he said something very sweet that I, that I wanted to, uh, to read. Uh, he says this, he says, you hit this beautiful, sweet spot of stoner, seeker, and intellect that is wildly underserved. It's the only thing that matters from what I can tell. And I love that spirit because I I have been listening to a a lot of podcasts that are kind of overlapping my zone and nobody does what I do. I mean, one of the things is that if if they're talking about weird occult stuff, they tend to kind of support the credulity of a lot of listeners. They, They want there to be a fantasy world where all these things are happening and magic is real and the aliens are are, are, are communicating with us. And I, I'm fascinated to, in exploring those realms and, and I have my own, my own hunches, uh, but I'm really devoted to this kind of middle way. And then on the other hand, I, you know, you, you go to a lot of uh, kind of philosophy, neuroscience, uh, even Buddhist sites, and they're, they're very rationalistic. You know, they're very skeptical in the kind of new sense of the term, whereas I think of myself as an OG skeptic in the, uh, in the kind of Robert Anton Wilson Puro sense, where you're kind of radically open-minded, uh, but also very respectful of uh, critical thought and indeed of science. So this sort of middle path that I'm interested in, in most of the shows kind of inform, I mean, that we do other things too, uh, it's, there's not a lot out there. So if you like this show and, you know, uh, you listen to it regularly, you know, please consider, uh, doing, uh, a review, you know, like iTunes is really a place to do it. You know, we have reasonably good numbers, not a lot of reviews, and I'm not very high up on a lot of the lists. Um, and you know, it's fun to get good uh, feedback. And another thing that, um, you could consider is, uh, calling the, uh, PRN, which is the station that hosts the show and uh, uh, doing a little voicemail that maybe we can weave into some of the shows because it's really interesting for me to hear what people like about it. I have a wonderful folder in my email that's full of feedback. You know, I probably have a couple thousand things from over the years, but a lot of things from uh, the podcast. And uh, yeah, it's it it, uh, it it not just tickles my fancy. It's a fuel in the tank, and it also gives me a sense of what are the things that people are most interested in, or what are the the values that I'm particularly bringing that I can even uh, continue to refine. And so that number, if you wanted to call in and just say your name and say you're you're leaving a message about expanding mind, it's a new thing PRN's trying. So we'll check it out. It's eight six two. 
800-6805. That's 862-800-6805. And we can throw them into the mix. But I don't want to talk anymore for now because I want to get to the second part of the interview with Diana Pasolka, author of American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, and Technology. We had a wonderful chat Last week, got good numbers, as they say. You know, I, I really hate the numbers thing, though. Well, we'll talk about I'll I'll rant about that <laughs> later. I'll rant about that later. I'll, I Maybe I'll even devote a whole show to a solo rant about, you know, me- weaponized envy and the new social... Anyway, um, much more fun to continue to talk to uh, uh, Diana, who's a, who has a wonderful perspective that I find very simpatico because she's her training is pretty similar to mine in terms of uh, scholarship, and we've been influenced, as we talked about last week, by some similar characters, including Jeffrey Kripal and uh, Jacques Vallée, who I've been trying to lure on the show, but believe me, it's very difficult. I've made promises. I've said, don't worry, we can not talk about UFOs. If you're sick of it, we'll, we'll just talk about investing or the internet or something. Uh, but he's, he's always busy. He's always traveling. But he's a, he's a wonderful character. Uh, and I know he's inspired us both in this sort of middle path where we're open. We, yeah, we actually feel something probably is going on out there that isn't uh, altogether reducible to the uh, familiar uh, laws of physics, at least as they are presented in mainstream uh, science, and yet uh, still uh, remaining radically open and uh, at least, um, uh, I, I believe, very um, uh, you know, intensely skeptical of, in, a, in a deep philosophical sense as opposed to the modern skeptic sense. So uh, today, what I want to focus on is start, start off, Diane, I want to talk about media, and then I want to talk about religion. So welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks a lot. I had a great time talking last week with you. It was wonderful. Yeah. Well, one of the th- we didn't really talk too much about about the media angle, and that's one of my uh, what I really like about the the book is the way that it's a kind of triangulation of um, U- UFOs and in, in, from a religious perspective, but also from a media perspective. And you have a lot of very interesting things to say. I mean, one of them is that. The, you know, much of contemporary ufology is a creature of media. It's highly mediated. It's invented in through the internet, through uh, documentaries, through Hollywood films, through television shows, and indeed so much so that it's almost hard to distinguish between people that you, as you insist on, to just make the distinction between the kind of media myth and the experiences or the um, researchers who are most rigorously interested in the phenomenon and not just participating in recycling and rehashing uh, the mythology. So maybe that's an interesting place to start. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking uh, per, in particular you have an, uh, a chapter about in the field uh, where they're sort of, you know, trying to keep their finger in the dike uh, and preventing the storm of hoaxing and and uh, fake news and um, just more, you know, kind of mediated BS about UFOs and, and trying to like winnow it down. So talk a little bit about this, uh, this distinction between the kind of yeah. general myth sure. of UFOs and the kind of thing you're most interested in, in focusing in, uh, in your book. Sure. I think actually this today is a uh... Today is the 9th of January, and today is a really good day to talk about this because um, we've got 
Project Blue Book, right, which is a media presentation about Project Blue Book, um, which was a program um, that Alan Hynek was a part of, and it's been featured um, as a media production at the same time that Kit Green and Gary Nolan, two researchers who do uh, work on anom anomalous cognition, have released a very interesting paper about brains and uh, you know, how brains perceive anom anomalous cognition. And so what I think is really interesting is that what, from my perception, the UFO community is really stuck on this media production that plays, you know, I mean, people, there. there's a good book out there about Hynek, you know, um, the Close Encounters guy. And it's, it's a historical, accurate, portrayal of him you know that Jacques Vallée worked with Heineck and you and I know a bit about him too and you've got this media production that kind of um you know it takes poetic license but then you actually have actual research that's out there and everybody seems to be ignoring it so that's my point my point was basically that you do have people who are in the field. And by the way, in the field is a Facebook group started by Scott Brown. Um, and it's a group of global videographers who capture the phenomena. And they also are schooled in CGI and Photoshop. So they're also able to identify hoaxes and things like that. And and, you know, they basically say it's really difficult to identify what's really ano anomalous as opposed to what's CGI. And you have to have a trained eye. OK, so um, so you get this mixing of fact and fiction. And what's really aggravating, I think, for at least it's aggravating for me, is that there are people who are doing this work. And maybe, you know, uh, OK, let's put it this way. You've got people doing the work. And they're not on TV. They're not, they're not known. They're not in film. And they basically like it that way because they say, well, you know what? If a lot of people were, you know, tr trying to get the information from me, um, I wouldn't be able to do my work in peace. So there is work that's being done, but it's, it's, not, it's not produced. You know, so a lot of people that want to know about it, normal people, go online, they watch TV, and this is where we get our ideas of the phenomenon. But those ideas are completely, you know, I always say this to my undergraduate, this segues actually into this idea of religion. I always say to my undergraduates, most of what you know about religion comes from film, TV, and the internet. Have you ever read what's in the Bible? And a lot of them say, yes, yes, yes. And then I pick up the Bible and I say, okay, let's take a look at these two creation stories. And they go, whoa, 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 two creation stories? <laughs> and I say, yeah, they're side by side here in the Bible. You've not read it. So, you know, what they know they get from, uh, you know, from the screen culture. Yeah. But it seems like... And, and today's, a, you know, today's a good day for that because it's happening right, right in front of us with these two kind of projects. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, one of the reasons that it seems so important to, to study ufology, even if you're not interested in going into the real details and, you know, absorbing all the lore, but, but, but staying in touch with it is that it, it seems to me to be one of the most interesting places to investigate 
the problems of information and media and reality creation. I mean, even if you're you're really skeptical about it, it's it's still really valuable because in addition to just the fact that, of course, there's this whole kind of myth-making machine, both from individuals and amateurs who are promoting themselves or who are kooky or who uh, want to, you know, manipulate ideas. But then you also have two factors, or I mean, there's at least two factors. One is that there's, you know, evidence, and you talk about it in your book, it's totally obvious, and as soon as you think about it, it makes total sense, that the military has been manipulating UFO mythology for more than one agenda since, you know, the early 50s, uh, if, if not into the 40s, with, with the Roswell uh, events and the, you know, in the first arising of the, of the flying saucer, in the sense that, you know, not only does this mythology make a good cover for actual uh, developments, so people see weird things in the sky and they go, oh, it's just another UFO, uh, uh, you know, story. So it's a way of creating a screen around actual um, uh, military developments. But in a more spooky zone, you know, if you can imagine a uh, an espionage counterintelligence agency or set of agencies who are interested in exploring how one creates mass mythology, you're going to see it here. You're not going to see it. That This is where you're going to see those kinds of manipulations as well. So there's very good reason to believe that the myth sphere isn't just a product of Hollywood or isn't just a product of amateurs who are you know, indulging in their own myth-making imagination uh, uh, in, in ways that can be very entertaining and quite rich, uh, but that there's more going on there. So that's one side that seems interesting. And then the other thing that I'll throw out there, and you, you can take, take what you want. The other thing is that as far as I read it, and I could be wrong, as far as I read it, it seems to be the case that if you look really closely at a lot of uh, experiences, especially well-known ones, it seems as if there's this strange, almost kind of anticipatory mechanism where scripts, ideas, images, uh, little little scenes, scenarios that we can find in fiction, we can find in Pulp Fiction and some strange story from France in the 1930s or whatever, seems to weirdly arise within people's experiences, not in the sense that they just read those that stuff and then happen to have the experience, but almost as something weirder is going on, is that the very interface that our imaginations create between us and whatever is stimulating these experiences when they're not just totally fabricated, that that imagination has something to do with our own stories. And Kripal talks about this in lots of ways. So it's not just like the whole myth, the whole problem of myth is in a way the whole problem of the UFO. I totally agree. I think that it's an, the, like I say in my book, it's the perfect example here of seeing how a myth is created. We have the golden opportunity to see how a legend is formed, but a religion as well. So if you, you know, I know Christianity best. This is, a, you know, what I specialize in. So I go back into the first, second, third centuries, and you can see the exact same processes at work. And this is interesting. So, you know, you have experiences. Then you have people 
people talking about the experiences. And then you have people coming along and saying, well, these are very powerful experiences. How can we use them? And so, you know, you have all of these different characters and they all showed up when I first began my research. And I thought, you know, at first I was a little taken off guard. I was like, wait a minute, we've got screenwriters showing up. We, you know, people that are, uh, that are well-known people, you know, like um, people that are interested in, in doing this, that our household names were showing up and people, agents, things like that, you know, and, and that was scary for me. And I thought, what the heck is going on? And then I realized, wait a minute, this is just like Christianity. This is like the beginning of this major movement that's taking place and you've got you've got the people who are the experiencers you've got the people who want to make the story of the experiences because they're powerful experiences you have people that want to spin them for money and entertainment i mean you've got every factor in there that that goes into making a mythology and so and plus it's it's supercharged because of the type of media we have today which by the way this is another point i make in the book is that it's a it's Heidegger's point. It's Martin Heidegger, the philosopher's point. It's basically, you know, we assume that our technology is something that we use, but actually we live within a sea of, of technology. And when we watch something, say we watch uh, there's a there's a great book called Your Mind on Film, and it's by Jeffrey Zach, I believe his name is. Jeffrey Zach. Yeah, and he's a neuroscientist. Um, yeah. And um, he does a great job because what he does is he shows that, okay, you take, say, a historical event and you let people read this or the historical event. And then a week later, you show them a very visually stimulating movie about this event that's wrong, that's incorrect, and it's not historically accurate. And then two weeks later, you, you know, you do a, uh, you test them on it and they're going to remember the visual they're going to remember the stimulating immersive environment they won't remember the accurate portrayal of it so you know so even though we go to the movie or we watch something on the internet and we say i don't believe this i know it's not true our brains are way trickier than that so we physiologically respond to it as if it's true so we go into say the conjuring i i worked on that movie we go into the conjuring and we say to each other, oh, we know this is stupid. It's not true. Not that it's stupid. It's, it's really good. James Wan is an excellent director. We go in there. We go, it's not true. But then why are we screaming, you know? <laughs> so if I tell you, you know, you're eating a lemon, okay? And you can't stop from making that weird kind of sal, you know, you're, you're going to salivate because you know you're not eating a lemon, but your brain is doing something different. Your body is doing something different. So what I'm saying in my book is that with all this research in cognitive science and neuroscience, we're interact. It's changing the way we think. It's changing what we think. So when we see something in the sky, um, we're gonna, you know, no one wants to be that person who sees a UFO, right? I mean, none of my friends do. They're like, oh yeah, whatever. Um, it's a drone or something, or it's you know. But, you know, so we think of all the things it, it couldn't be. But in our minds, we're always like, oh, you know, we're, the first thing we think of is UFO. Well, about 100 years ago, maybe the first thing they think of was an angel or, you know, that's the Virgin Mary coming down on a circular cloud or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, that, that these issues are so sticky, and you really have an interesting way of approaching it uh, in your book in terms of talking about how these new media objects, and particularly given the degree which we're immersed in them, they're they're more sort of surrounding us. The internet itself it, it increasingly takes on this kind of quality of a, of a kind of immersive media space, not in the sense of virtual reality. And that's just around the corner. I mean, just wait how how, how that's going to go. Uh, that that we are seeing some kind of weird shift in in the reality fantasy kind of uh, tension, and which is in some sense always been part of human experience. I mean, uh, that's what or, you know, older religions or mythologies are, you know, you read Thucydides or, and, you know, it's a kind of historical battle. Everything's kind of normal. We can relate to it. And then, you know, the God Hermes shows up and, you know, runs across the battlefield and proclaims something. And then people have to build a temple. And you're like, well, what is that? Is that just some interpolation of the writer after the fact where everything else was kind of what we would conceive as normal? Or is there some sort of you know, kind of weird edge where the, the, the fiction reality blend uh, uh, kind of gets kicked into gear and begins to sort of sh- alter at least, you know, human experience. And, and you know, we can talk about that from the perspective of myth. We can talk about it from the perspective of religion. But one thing I wanted to ask you about and how you felt about it, and it's almost kind of an ethical question, is when you factor in the science, because one of the things that uh, makes the UFO scene a little different um, in terms of it being a new religion is the way in which it, in many different domains or dimensions, invokes science and technology, whether it's the specific obsession with uh, nuts and bolts machines or what kinds of technological principles could explain these craft, uh, or whether, as some of your your subjects, including these technically and scientifically sophisticated people who are, who kind of lean into the fringier potentials and possibilities of, of science and physics in order to kind of explain how, or, or to kind of sneak up on explanations for how these things can go. There's an element of, of science in here too. And the question I wanted to ask you, this is, I know it's a long roundabout way, but hopefully it's interesting. The question I wanted to ask you is, it comes out of a, a, a feeling that I had, a, a, a very strong sense that I had when I was reading it, and I'm not sure whether it makes sense or not, so that's why I'm, I'm asking you. So when I read, and you're talking about some of your characters, and they're you know, having re, you know, religious experiences or mythological experiences, or they're wrestling with... Um, the kind of deeper meanings of these things. I'm like, you know, great. Let's just look at new forms of religion. Let's look at new ways that people are organizing the, re- the meaning of the world using symbols, using beliefs. Great. Let's just check it out. It's like the open-ended religious anthropologist. Let's just put it out there. No need to judge them. Let's just see what people, what kind of meanings people are making, let's say, of, of visions of Mary and how that feeds into a devotional Catholic culture. Great. I don't, I don't need to deflate those balloons. I'm just interested in how the phenomena works. But when I come to reading some of the sections of your scientific uh, subjects and they start invoking, let's just say, not altogether normal physics, 
to explain certain things. There's something else that I respond where I go, oh, hmm, I kind of want you to say to make it clear that this is not, that this is new age physics, meaning it's not quite what, uh, you know, standard physicists would say. And, you know, without getting involved in the whole question of what science is, blah, blah, blah. And I'm realizing that's kind of the point is that part of what makes the UFO religion powerful is that there's an aspect of it that's not just quote-unquote religious. There's an aspect of it that has to do with technology, with science, with physics. And that's part of the claim, and that's part of what makes your scientific subjects so interesting in this book. But I still don't know how to think about it. Do I just say, oh yeah, well, they're coming up with these ideas and da-da-da, where there's another part of me that wants to go, you know, it's really important, especially as intellectuals, even if we're sympathetic with people, to continue to insist on some kind of reality that is is not just like giving into the, the story, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that is where they're okay. So I can't, I'll respond in two different ways. The first way is this, is that what makes this a new type? So this is not your standard UFO religion, right? So this is not like, you know, nation of Islam, UFO religion type thing, because we have those. This is a new type of religiosity. And what gives it um, a diffuse and widespread appeal is its potential truth claims. And the potential truth claims are future-oriented. So this is how it goes. So we say, well, the universe is, you know, billions of years old. And surely there has been or will be life, right? And maybe we'll find it, maybe we won't find it. Maybe it's found us, maybe it hasn't. NASA scientists, Ellen Stofan is their chief, is the chief NASA scientist. She comes on every month and she makes a statement and says, we will find life. It, you know, she's not talking about like intelligent life or grays or anything like that. She's talking about microbes or something like that, but that's not how people read it. So she's saying, we're going to find life. So you've got not only the mythology of the advanced ET right? Coming to either save us or destroy us, right? Either they're evil or they're good. But you also have scientists basically supporting this realistic idea that this could potentially happen. You don't really have that in other religions. So if you look at Christianity, you know, you have to have faith to believe that Jesus walked on water. You have to have faith that he was resurrected and is the son of God, okay? No scientist is going to say, I'm going to prove that he's the son of God. I'm going to prove that a man can walk on water. But you actually here do have scientists, and that's why I feature them. You have these scientists who are basically saying, one, in one particular case, I'm getting ET downloads, and they're helping me uh, create technology. And another who's saying, um, at some point, ET, you know, we're going to find some kind of habitable planet or life, or we're going to go into space, and this is how we're going to do it. And so, you know, they're kind of... Uh, at the forefront of, I mean, they're both incredibly successful. We can't, you know, I'm not going to deny that. So what you have is you have the potential. It's like, it's like this. Okay. If you give a survey, I give surveys to my students and I say, who believes in the, you know, I give them 
four or five different ways that they could believe in ET life, right? And one of the ways is it's future. I, I believe that it could possibly happen. And a lot of them go for that one. So I make that statement in my book. I say, it's okay. You know, people are very comfortable saying, well, perhaps someday this will happen, right? So that's, they defer the, the realism of it. And so that's very powerful for a new belief form, a new mythology. So we're talking about a mythology that has a potential truth claim here. Which is weird. Yeah, and it, it and I, and it's weird in a specific way in that it it messes with with time, you know. It messes with time and also the sense of of like cultural evolution. Like we're moving towards some kind of event, and you see that also in the way that. And you don't really talk about this too much in, in, in your book, but you know, one of the more significant things you'll find in if you kind of dive into sort of standard issue ufology is that there'll be these waves of rumors and expectation and hope around like the 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 revelation where the government comes out and says okay you're right the disclosure yeah. you know yeah. that and it's such a fan i mean it's meaning meaning that you know even though we have seen disclosures i mean there was the new york times piece whatever a couple of years ago it was like what what's that that's so weird you know, and it felt weird to see it on the front page of the, of the Times, <laughs> yeah. you know, like that itself was kind of a weird yeah. virtual reality experience, <laughs> you know, not unlike the, I remember the first day I went in and discovered that, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was running for governor, like it did that to me, like I felt oh, like I, I was know. in a science Tell fiction movie. It. Um, <laughs> anyway, so this, but but disclosure, it's, it's so clearly about this sort of almost apocalypse, it's like a kind of, it's, you know, it's a literal revelation, it's that that you know the truths will be known and they will destroy existing reality and everything will be kind of different and so on the one hand you can look at it and go oh, well, that's so obviously religious come on i mean we get to see it it's almost clockwork religious psychology christian psychology and yet at the same time there like you say there's this kind of it's all about a certain kind of truth claim that is not reducible or not you can't just write it off directly as another mythological, uh, another mythological form. So is it is it still does it then hurt it a little bit to think about it as religion? You know, is religion a big enough category to take in these future sciences? You know, in a way, you know, like your scientists characters are talking about yeah. future uh, technology development. Yeah, so I'm that's like, really a good question. Yeah. Do we miss something mm -hmm. by that? By talking? I think that I've been working in new religious movements and a lot of people, um, care, you know, are doing fiction based religion. OK, so to me, this is even a different category than that. This is a category that makes it makes this mythology so powerful that there's no way every like so many people are going to believe it. I feel like there's nothing we can do. We're going in that direction. It's going to happen. I'm not saying that ETs are going to come like Independence Day or anything like that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that this truth bite to this new mythology makes it irresistible. That's what I'm saying. And that's what I'm, that's basically what I'm saying all through the book is that this is how this new type of religion uh, is emerges from our digital screen culture. This is how it does. And this is that new type of religion. And we're going to see it everywhere in different types of forms. Yeah, I mean, in, in one... Um, and so, yeah. Go ahead. That's basically what I'm saying. 
<laughs> well, I, I was thinking about, you know, again, this, this, this weird sense that there's like a future object that's shaping the UFO discourse, like that there's a sense of whether it's disclosure or whether it's the encounter or whether it's even just mainstream scientists saying, yeah, we found a bug on an asteroid or something. That, that there's this sense of... Yeah, it's, es- it's eschatology. Right. Yeah. But, I, but I'm thinking exactly. that maybe there's another element of it, and your your book would very much support that, particularly your wonderful discussion of, of 2001, that another object that's sort of looming in the future that, in a way, that ufology is kind of like the you know, the, the temporal backwash of it through, you know, reverse t- through time, is that point where... Because of virtual reality, because of children being grazed in this environment and and it becoming more and more difficult and fewer and fewer people are capable of maintaining a kind of full-on critical distance that makes a distinction between history and fantasy, da-da-da-da, maybe there's also a sense that there's that moment of like perfect virtual reality when when the, the reality game is up. And, and, you know, all the distinctions break down. And it's, it's also a fantasy, like Disclosure or like, you know, the E.T.'s landing at the end of Close Encounters. But I think it's also something that's implied by looking at this phenomenon deeply like the way you do, which is it, it seems to reflect some, the, the, the power of that breakdown between you know, f- fiction and fact. Let's say, let's call it virtuality, where it's sort of both and neither. That that once it becomes a sort of force, like or 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 it becomes a new force, that it's precisely going to take this kind of form of this encounter with an alien object, with a cosmic intelligence, with some kind of galactic mind, with some kind of future technology. That that fu- that very future technology. It's just like what you talk about with the uh, with the, the monolith in two thousand and one. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, that movie was just haunted me throughout the writing of that book i couldn't get away from it i never even got that thing like i'm serum right here i'm picking up my my cell phone and i go oh it's a monolith like i never got that like i you know it's like right in front of my face every day i mean i've seen that movie a dozen times and then now i'm like oh my god look there's a mon i carry a monolith around with me everywhere i go uh and the weird way that the monolith is a screen you know isn't that bizarre yeah, yeah. that was um that I have to give credit to the guy who did collative learning, I think it's called. And he's got um, a bunch of just, I recommend everybody watch his analyses of 2001 um, and the monolith, the meaning of the monolith. And his last name is Ayer, but I can't remember his first name, but it's collative learning. And um, early on, I read his analysis and I was like, I, of course, that's it. <laughs> you know, of course that's it. So it's the cinema screen and it's the screen. It's, you know, it's all, it's the screen cultures that we live within. Um, there was another point I was going to raise that you were talking about, but I can't remember what it was. It was, um, it was right before the two, the 2001 um well, we're talking about the the, the breakdown of, of real and, and virtual as this kind of oh, like right. backwards the same, yeah, effect. Yeah, kind of like this. Yeah, 
the singularity type thing. So, you know, the, uh, right. So, um, this conflation of, you know, what, what the kind of reality in which we live, um, did we talk in part one about the specialist factual genre? We mentioned it, but why don't you? I would. I had that noted as something that I'd like to hear more about because I'd never heard of it really before. I mean, I was aware of it a little bit, but but it's it's a big deal. It really is because this is what it. This is exactly what is happening right now. So it's it's a genre called specialist factual, and it's like it's kind of like documentary, or you know, there are different genres of TV and. Um, Netflix and, you know, every production company now, not everyone, but it's the big deal right now to have a specialist factual um, department. And (laughs) specialist factual is a weird name. And I don't know who invented it. However, there's a Philip K. Dick short story that was made into Total Recall. And it was called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. And the name of that com- that corporation that places false memories into your brain is called, in, in P.K. Dick's uh, short story, it's called Extra Factual. So Specialist Factual is the exact same thing. What it is, is it's a department in these production companies that do this. They they splice CGI and different types of, of um, use, you know, of special effects that look realistic into historical footage. And they pitch them as documentaries and they pitch them to kids. And so you'll see specialist factual productions on like BBC documentaries or the History Channel. And you'll see like the shark Megalodon or you'll see... Um, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex autopsies or something like that. Um, there's a particularly good uh, production company that does called Impossible Factual. And what's interesting is that there are these professional firms that do this, but there are also people that have websites that do this as well. Like if Star Wars was real, I think you were at one of the conferences that where I showed if Star Wars was real. It's a great website by this person who splices Star Wars characters into iconic pictures of world history. And so, you know, it's like here we live within um, this this virtual environment, which is now our environment. We can't deny it. And we live with these characters who aren't actually real, yet to us they have lives, they're real. People cry when they die, you know? I mean, so, so this new virtual reality is being accelerated through these kinds of production companies like Specialist Factual. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's just another, you know, one one thing to say earlier, you were talking about in the field and there's a really poignant comment that the fellow makes. And as you point out, one of the main things these guys do is that they they fight against hoaxes. Like they're interested in, in real deal records of whatever weird objects are in the sky, not in people uh, hoaxing. And he has a, he, you know, he basically says it's a losing battle and it's a losing battle yes. now 
but it's really going to be a yeah. losing battle in like two years. And like, just like two years, like not like 20 years, like two years. No, right. And, yeah. Two years. It might even be lost. It might already. Well, in some sense, it's already lost because that's going to happen. And in a way, what I'm, what I was just thinking about is that what you're talking about with the specialist factual programming and then the, the kind of, you know, putting Star Wars characters in historical footage is that we're, again, it's this sort of sense that we're already in this We've already crossed this point where we really can't trust video anymore as a his carrier of historical value. And it's a weird thing because you think about it like people had history or something like history before there was cinema, before there was photography. It wasn't like there wasn't history in 1753. There was. It's just that what carried history for those people was different than what carries it for 20th century people, which has a huge amount to do with cinema and photography and audio recording. And we we're sort of riding it. We're at the very tail end of that as a coherent way of holding on to history. So it's not like history disappears and it's all just fantasy, but it is like those forces that have sustained our sense of history and have modulated it and been used as factual evidence in courtrooms, in historical memory, in training, in telling people about, about their history for all of the distortions. Nonetheless, there's something to having seen those scratchy black and white films of the Holocaust or whatever. Uh, but that stuff is going away. And the, the weird looping you know, vertiginous void uh, that that opens up is, is, you know, we only have a taste of it now in the fact that the History Channel runs ancient aliens shows and, and shows that aren't really rooted in, in anything like conventional history, but they're called the History Channel. And the same thing with National Geographic and these other sort of bodies that at least at one point stood for some kind of journalistic or historical value those are already melted down but that's just a little that's just a little bonbon you know a little aperitif for uh <laughs> the gargantuan feast of confusion that's <laughs> that's just around the around the corner yeah i agree it's incredible so how do you think it's, the ufo um, is what's going to happen i mean do you sense that it's this is actually going to become even more even more pervasive Oh, no doubt. It's definitely going to become more pervasive. This is a good example. So my students, they're, you know, they're 20, right? So they're college students. And they the Vatican. Hey, Diana. I had taught. A hey, class. Diana. Dana. Yeah. Uh, can, you, can you hear me? Yeah. Just that last yeah. bit. Just start talking about the students again. Okay. No. Okay. So I have these students and, you know, the college students. Hmm. Let's see. Um, let's see. Can you hear me now? I can't hear you now. You can? Yeah. Okay. So just start again. So, all right. Should I start? Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay, so a really good example is my, okay, so I have students, they're college students, 20 years old. So the students go, they see St. Francis of Assisi, and he's being, um, he's give, being given the stigmata by these, by an angel in the sky. And to them, 
this angel looks like a UFO and it looks like this UFO is zapping him and giving him these wounds. And so they write back to me, they send me pictures and they say, Hey, is this guy getting, you know, zapped by a UFO? So because of the media priming of, you know, all of the UFO media that we've been exposed to since birth, uh, we won't see things the same as we did before. And that's just the reality. That's just how it is. But now that's in a way the same thing, you know, and then as sort of whatever intellectuals or historians or critical thinkers, you know, we we push back against that just the way that even though that may be different, the same way that you might push back against the, you know, some popular idea of ghosts or something in the in the in the 18th century, uh, at least if that's something we're still uh, invested in. And I guess what I what I'm trying to think about is what is. Um, you know, how, how do you try to like engage that reality, recognize that it's going to be true for people and yet not simply submit to the kind of self-mythologizing, in some ways, you know, mind-manipulating logic of, uh, of contemporary media? Right. So that's a good question. And I wish I could answer that. I mean, I, that's my question. And so I even asked that question in the beginning. I say, I'm, I'm just about to, as a religious studies person who's trained to, to keep my distance and stuff like that, how am I possibly going to write this book without being somehow folded into this mythology myself? And truthfully, I don't know if I can. So I'm just going to write the book. And that's what I did. Yeah. No, I can, I can relate with that. I mean, I had, I had something similar when I, I wrote High Weirdness. There's a way in which... I was trying to articulate at the end, and it, it, it kind of feels like my core questions are things that have to do with, you know, experiences I've had, nebulous things that I can't put anywhere, and that ultimately all the book is doing is kind of passing it on. It's like passing right. on the conundrum. It's like you're yeah. not, you know, because it doesn't work to just say, oh, we need to restore the sense of historical reality and, criti-, you know, like, good luck, fella. You know, that's yeah. that's not really the waters, at least that people like you and I swim in, which does bring us, we haven't talked too much about religion per se, but, you know, the, one of the su- many surprising things in your book was this, uh, tor- at, the, at the very end, we see one of your scientific science characters, Tyler, uh, goes with you to Italy, and 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 he, e- either because he's already in on the, you know, in on the secret, or because he's a famous guy. It's not really clear. Through him, you get all this access to the Vatican Library that you normally wouldn't get. Um, and then he ends up having a, a a kind of con- or not kind of he ends up having a conversion experience, and we watch him kind of uh, convert and or you know open up to this new sense of religiosity and, and of compassion and within a Catholic frame. And uh, I mean that's a very interesting thing. And so what it it, it made me go: How do you compare and contrast at that point between? The UFO search, which has this kind of scientific or technical dimension to it, and uh, a, in a way, a kind of classic religious search that that winds up with a, a change of heart, with a a maybe even an embrace of ideas that must be taken on faith. Um, does Tyler kind of prove that we're still really in religion here, or how, how did you end up thinking about that? Well, first of all, it really surprised me. So it's not like I planned this to happen. 
but it did. And so um, it was one of the things in the book. I mean, here I am studying, you know, going around doing research on UFOs and that's weird. But then this happens. And truthfully, that, <laughs> you know, so this guy becomes, um, you know, he's he's completely impacted by this ethos in Rome and then at the Vatican Observatory talking with Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's this, you know, Jesuit brother, astronomer. And it's powerful. I watch it and I want to find out if it has changed his idea of the phenomena. And he basically contextualizes it as he, he believes in God but he also believes in ETs, right? And he believes that ETs are below God, but above humans. So he's got kind of this hierarchical way of looking at things, kind of like a medieval hierarchy. And so to me, that was fascinating. And I also saw what, you know, because he was meeting people that had dedicated their lives to serving people. And I think that, you know, here he's in the United States. He's got, a, you know, he's got his own airplane. And, you know, he's kind of one of these guys that's made it. And so he doesn't actually work. I mean, all of my life, I, you know, I, I went to a Jesuit school and I've been around, I've been Catholic. I've been around people who are Catholic. And so I, I, that's nothing new to me. So I've seen people who've dedicated their lives. A lot of my friends are sisters and priests, you know, and they do the hard work. They really do. They do a lot of hard work. And so here he's exposed to that and, his, and that somehow touches him and opens him. And um, it's, it's something I didn't expect at all, um, but I had to report it because that's what happened. And it, it became my last chapter, even though I thought it was done with my book. I realized that, you know, this is too weird. I have to put this chapter in here. And um, so does it, does it say anything? I actually end with the conclusion back to Heidegger where, and it's not necessarily, um, you know, it's kind of a gloomy ending, I think for me, maybe not for Tyler because he has a different ending than the ending I have. But, you know, I put it back onto us and our relationship with technology and Heidegger basically ends by saying, you know, he's, he's pretty doomsday about it. Yeah, yeah, only only a God can save us now. And, uh, although I was thinking of, of one other line I, that, that you talk about it in the book too, which is this interesting idea about the absurd that that you know valet was one of the first people to really point out it's like no 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 the absurdity is part of the phenomenon it's not that the absurdity shows you that it's just uh, goofy and people making it up uh, nor that it, uh, people are, are misperceiving and that that's the problem it's that absurdity is almost woven into not just the UFO, ufo but a great deal of paranormal activity there's this element of the kind of trickster absurd um, but then that loops around again to one of those, you know, the kind of classic line. I don't remember whether it's Tertullian or whoever says it, but uh, that that you know one believes because it is absurd, and there's some sense of the necessity of the absurd as a way of understanding reality, as a way of understanding things like. The, whatever the, these strange phenomena are as a way of understanding why people continue to be religious, but also understanding how we can possibly 
have hope in relationship to all these things that we're talking about. Like it's almost absurd to go, hey, hey, we can let's just keep rolling, guys. You know, like we'll make it through. Well, we won't completely submit to to uh, to the crazy. Um, so there, there, there's some kind of sense of like the the absurd as being a really important factor in this whole in this whole thing. That's right. And I do. I And Jacques says that to me, definitely. And I actually quote that. And I think it is the, um, the conclusion. And that to me, more than any, and thanks for bringing it up, more than any other aspect, I think that's probably the takeaway for me, just for me. Because Jacques has said, it's a koan, you know, the, the Japanese Zen koan, right? Buddhist koan. It basically boggles the mind and wakes us up and maybe that's what it's about i don't know but you know what it if it's about that that's good yeah we can't really we can't really know the uh the the end of that one i was just listening to a podcast uh where with thomas metzinger who's a neuroscientist and, and buddhist practitioner very rational guy but also very deep uh practitioner and he was talking about there's a, a kind of state you can get into which is sort of not that this is just an illusion uh, but it's also not what it seems to be. Like when, if you recognize that our perception of the world is a model that's created by the brain and you base it on anticipation and history and things like that, it's not that the model isn't there or it doesn't correspond or in some way represent a, a more underlying reality, but it's also a fabrication. And he was talking about the, the meditation or even going in and out of virtual reality, and he's kind of interested in the relationship between them, can get us to this place where what's happening, phenomena, appearances, in a sense are neither real or simply illusion. And, and that thing, which is scary but also seems to be very key to our experience, um, does seem to be another thing at play in all of this, or at least a way to, to give it a kind of Zen or uh, a kind of metaphysical uh, framework rather than just talking about like, oh, we can't tell the difference between reality and fantasy anymore. There's something else that's being pointed out. I love that. I think it's great. Well, what kind of, uh, we just got a couple of minutes left. What kind of response you, have you gotten from, uh, you know, from, from true believers? Have, have people accused you of working for the, the CIA yet? Um, yeah, that happened a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've, I've gotten a lot of positive response from people who are religious. And I've also, believe it or not, gotten some cool responses from affiliated people. <laughs> from what? Say that again, from what? <laughs> With the CIA. Oh, okay. And, um, <laughs> yeah, affiliated people. I mean, positive responses all around. Let's put it that way. I got positive responses from the mainstream press. Publishers Weekly gave me a, a starred review. Kirkus reviewed it, said that UFO people who believed in UFOs were not delusional. I was like, okay, I'll take it. Um, and um, so uh, my press has delayed, it seems, um, releasing it for various reasons. And that has gotten some people riled up and I wish I could release it but that's you know the press gave me an apology for it but there's nothing I can do about it, it releases on January 18th from the press right. so um and you know uh it's been wonderful working with my editor Cynthia she's the best um she's in quite intuitive 
introduced me to a lot of the Russian Cosmos stuff. And um, so, I mean, so far things have been okay. Um, I think that, you know, there will be pushback from various people, but I'll, I'll ask my friends to help me not read those reviews, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, ab- absolutely. No. Or I'll drink a glass. I'll drink a glass of wine before I read them. No, no, I think it'll be, I think it'll be a good ride. And maybe all, all the anticipation uh, will, uh, will amplify the, uh, the excitement once the people can actually get their, get their hands on the book. So uh, anyway, we can just ra- uh, wrap it up there, but I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, thanks. Uh, thanks again for, uh, for speaking with us here on, uh, on Expanding Mind. It's fun. Thanks so much, Eric. And I'll talk to you soon. Great. That's uh, Diana Pasulka again, author of American Cosmic UFOs, Religion, Technology. It was supposed to be out, but uh, uh, now I'm going to hold on to my galley copy even more valuably, but it will be out very shortly. So tune into that and tune into the show next week. I think I'm going to do a solo show ne- next week. Uh, I did one earlier uh, last, last year and people liked it. So I'm going to Give it another shot, and until then, keep your minds open.